now we come to another section of justification by faith, this doctrinal section. Justification by faith, the experience of the Galatians. Now, I personally believe in experience. I have a Methodist background as a boy. I went down as a fella to a little penitent altar underneath a brush arbor, back of an unpainted Methodist church in southern Oklahoma, and I knelt there. My heart is open. I didn't get much instruction, but believe me, my heart was open. I was ready for somebody, you know, to talk to me, to say something to me. Well, the thing is, I believe in experience, and we're going to come to that again a little later when we get to the fourth chapter. But now Paul goes back to the experience of the Galatians. And now, how did they get saved? Did they get saved by law, or were they saved by faith in Jesus Christ? That's very important to see that. And he says here in verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you. Now, he says here, O foolish Galatian. The very interesting word here is the word mind is noose. And actually, what he's saying is this. He's saying you're not using your mind. You're not using your noose. And let me put it in a good Americano idiom. What's gotten into you? (laughs) What is really happened to you. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? What's gotten into you? And he says here, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth. Now, this word set forth actually means placarded, painted. In other words, Paul painted a word picture. I'm not sure, but what he'd use, illustrations, That is, actually draw pictures. That is the thing that he's saying here. Any way to get the gospel out. I used to show, as a pastor, a great many slides. It's a marvelous way of teaching the Word of God. And I wouldn't dare teach the tabernacle without using slides. Now, that's the way you set forth. And that's the word Paul uses. He said, this is the way Jesus Christ was set forth. Before you, he was set forth, crucified among you, and that it was his death upon the cross that made it possible, your salvation. Now, in verse 2, he says, This only would I learn of you, receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith. Now, we need to be very careful here, and probably should say this, The gospel is true, irrespective of experience. And what experience does, it corroborates the gospel. Or let me put it like this. There are a great many people today that reason from experience to truth. And I personally think that the Word of God, as we have it here, always reasons from truth to experience. And that means we don't discount experience, but experience must be tested by truth. Now, everybody has a different experience. 
I hear one of the founders of the cult, a woman, she tells about her experience. And we got a woman today, she tells about her experience and that type of thing. And their experiences are entirely different. Now, which woman am I going to follow? Tell the truth, I'm not going to follow either one of them. I heard of a man in a meeting. He got up and he read a passage of Scripture. And after he read it, he said, now look. He said, there's difference of opinion about the interpretation of this passage of Scripture. And he says, because there is a difference of opinion, we don't want to cause any controversy here. And he says, let me tell you about my experience. Well, may I say to you, his experience was as far removed, actually, from what that passage of Scripture said as anything could possibly be. And he's basing truth on his experience. Well, you don't do that. Experience must corroborate the gospel. Now, the gospel is something you hear. And that which you hear, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Well, what does he mean by the hearing of faith? The organ of hearing, the ear, the receiving of the message, or the message itself. I think he means the whole process. He heard something. And you've got to hear something before you can be saved. Because the gospel is something God has done for you. And you have to know about that. Now, what Paul is doing here in this section is, very frankly, he's raising several questions. There are six questions here that he asks these people, and that has to do with experience. The experience of these people here. And therefore, he's saying here very carefully to them, what was your experience? Well, let me read several of these questions now. First, this only would I learn of you, receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law, by the hearing of faith. And nowhere did anyone ever receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the law. Nowhere, even in the Old Testament, never was put on that basis. It's by the hearing of faith. Now, he mentions the Holy Spirit three times, that they did not receive the Holy Spirit by the law. And the Holy Spirit is evidence of conversion. We are told in Romans 8, 9, "...but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you." And he says, "...now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his." And that is the evidence. Again, Paul said in Ephesians 1, 13, "...in whom ye also trusted, after ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation." in whom also after ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. That is Ephesians 1.13. And now the second question is, Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? In other words, if the Holy Spirit is the one that converted you, brought you to Christ, and now you're indwelt by the Spirit of God. Now you're going to turn back to the law which was given to control the flesh and think you're going to live on a high plane? Well, of course you're not going to live on a high plane. Then he says in verse 4, 
have ye suffered so many things in vain? Now, it says, remember, you've suffered. You've paid a price for the gospel. And my friend, you'll do that. And he says, if it be yet in vain, that is, without a purpose. Paul says, are you going to let all of this you've suffered just come to naught? Then he says, he therefore that ministered to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. And he's talking about his ministry that he had among them. And there's nothing as deadening as legalism today. That's the reason so many churches, even fundamental churches, are dead. They've created a new legalism, and they attempt to follow through on that. And my friend, I've got a liberty in Christ. And you know what that liberty is? I want to bow to him and do what he wants me to do. And my liberty is in Christ today. I want to do his will. And if I'm able to do that, and I can't do it in my own strength, only by the Spirit of God, but if I do it, oh, I have freedom. I don't have to come in your little wicked gate. I'm sorry, cults and isms. Don't bother me. I'm joined to the living Christ today. How wonderful it is. Now, you will recall that Paul's apostleship was attacked by the Judaizers. They said he's a Johnny-come-lately apostle, not one of the original twelve. He wasn't with the Lord Jesus during that period. He came along later, and they made an attack upon his apostleship. Now, he's going right back to that here, for he was the one that came into that country, preached the word of God to them, and as he says here, he performed miracles. He worked miracles among them. And he didn't do it by the works of the law. Paul would be very careful to say that, but it came about by the hearing of faith. He preached the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who died for them, who was raised again, and they are to put their faith in him. And when they did, the miraculous thing took place. They were regenerated, and Paul had the evidence of an apostle. You see, in that day, there were signs that were given to the apostles. I take it that the apostles had practically all the gifts that are mentioned in the Scripture. They had certainly all the sign gifts. Paul could perform miracles. Paul could heal the sick. Paul could raise the dead. Simon Peter did all of that also. And that was the mark of an apostle in that day. Now, the apostles have given to us today the Word of God. You and I have a faith today that we're told that's built upon Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone, but it's built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, not upon the apostles, but upon the foundation which they laid. Now, that rested upon their testimony, and that which gave credence to their word was that they have the sign gifts. Now, after they've given us the word here, then the sign gifts disappear. In fact, they disappeared, I think, with the apostles. And there were other reasons why those gifts were in evidence, which we took up when we were in 1 Corinthians. But the important thing for us to note here is that Paul came there not as a Pharisee preaching the law, but preaching Jesus Christ and that was something that they had experienced. They knew that, and Paul rests it upon that. 
Now we come to another section of justification by faith. We have now the illustration of Abraham. And this is that which looms very large, as you can see in this epistle. It begins here with this third chapter, verse 6, and it goes all the way down into the fourth chapter, verse 18. And then we have the illustration which is an allegory of Hagar and Sarah. And that takes us all the way through the fourth chapter. So actually, the very heart and book of this epistle, and we've come now to the high water mark, Abraham will be the illustration that will be given to us. Now, will you notice verse 6? He says, "...even as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness." Now, that is a quotation from Genesis 15:6, And it's been a long time since we've been back in Genesis 15:6. That is the illustration. And in view of the fact that we haven't been back there in over two years now, about two and a half years, I think it's about time for us to review just a little in our Through the Bible program and go back and see this illustration. And I think that we should make it very clear, this illustration comes from the early part of the life of Abraham, his life of faith. And the quotation is from Genesis 15:6, which says, "...and he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness." Now, this is a quotation that you find here. You find it in Romans 4, 3 also. This is an illustration that Paul uses in the epistle to the Romans and in the epistle to the Galatians. And Abraham is the great illustration of justification by faith. You can't say that Abraham was justified by law, for the law was not given until 400 years after Abraham. So don't Tell me that Abraham was justified by law. And don't tell me that he was justified by circumcision, because he was justified before circumcision was given to him. It became the badge and the evidence, just as today baptism is a believer's baptism. It's not to save you. It's to give evidence that you are saved. And that was the purpose of circumcision And so it made no contribution to salvation. Now, Abraham believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now, this took place after Abraham came back from Egypt. He and Lot were separated, and Lot went down to the city of Sodom. And the first war is recorded in the 14th chapter of Genesis, when the kings from the east came against the kings along the Dead Sea. And the kings from the east under Shador Leomer, they were the ones who won the battle, and they were taking all of the booty as well as the people away, apparently into slavery. And, of course, in that group there was this man Lot and his family. Well, he was a nephew of Abraham, and Abraham is not going to stand by and do nothing. So Abram, when word was brought to him that his nephew was taken captive, why, he immediately got ready for war. And we're told that he armed 318 men in his own household. And he made a very rapid march 
and overtook these enemies that were leaving with Lot and the rest of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he made a surprise attack, won the battle. And then the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah said to him, Now look, according to the code then of Hammurabi of that day, the booty would belong to Abraham. He was the winner. And they told him, they said, Now, you take the booty, it's yours, but give us the people. In fact, Abraham didn't have to give the people. He could have taken them in slavery, but he wasn't about to do that. And so Abraham wasn't about to take the booty either. He said, you couldn't give me a shoestring or a piece of thread. Now, that's getting it down to a pretty small item. He said, I want nothing from you. And that was a noble gesture on his part. In other words, he's saying, if I get rich, God will make me rich. I look to God, not to you. I wish we as believers today walked by faith like that. But this man Abraham, then after he made this very noble gesture, God appeared to him. Every time Abraham moved up to the light he had, why, God would appear to him again. And I think that's the reason that so many church members today know so little about the Bible, because I don't think God reveals light to us until we live up to it. And that's the reason that you can be a Bible teacher today and go to seed. And there are quite a few that don't want to do anything but argue. I get letters from different individuals across the country. They want to carry on a controversy with me. Well, I don't have time for it. I'm not busy in that. I'm not interested in it, by the way. But it reveals the fact that they've seized on some little technicality or some little doctrine, and some are right and some are wrong. They want to argue about it. God doesn't want us to do that. He's given us the Word for us to grow. And when we begin to grow, then He'll reveal more to us. In other words, He's not given us a T-bone steak or porterhouse steak or a filet mignon until you and I get off the bottle. There are too many of us today that are bottle babies. Spiritually, we just take milk. And that's all we have, and then we burp all over the place. You find a great many people, the great areas of the Scripture. When it's taught to them, my, they get all worked up, because they've never heard that before, and they can't accept it. It never come to their attention. May I say, God wants us to grow up. Now, Abraham's growing up, and you just feel like shouting when he tells these kings, you're not giving me a shoestring or piece of thread. Then God appeared to him. Chapter 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Now, what he said to Abram is this, Abraham, I protected you in that war. I'm your shield, and I'm your exceeding great reward. You did right in turning down the booty, because I will bless you, and you did right looking to me. Now, Abraham's a practical sort of an individual. He's not super pious. He didn't start running around saying, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, and have nothing to show for it. He began to talk to the Lord rather straight. And I think the Lord wants us to do that, friend. I'm afraid too many of us are super-duper saints that are very pious, you see. I know sometimes somebody say, oh, I'm reconciled when something happens to them. Oh, I accept this from the Lord. Well, they haven't accepted it at all. 
They're really in rebellion. Well, if you're in rebellion, why don't you go and tell him about it? Tell him how you feel. Tell him you think that he gave you a rough deal. You'll find that Moses went to the Lord on that basis. And by the way, Abraham is coming just that way. Listen to him. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me? Seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And you see, the one born in his house, he didn't have an heir. The chief steward, that would be the individual to inherit. That was also in the code of Hammurabi of that day. And so Abraham said, well, I don't have a child. You told me I would. Listen to him. Verse 3, And Abram said, Behold to me, thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. That's the code of Hammurabi. It'd have to be followed. You know, the Lord likes for us to deal with him like that. The Lord says, I'm glad you brought that up, Abraham. been wanting to tell you something. And listen, And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. God says, Abraham, you don't need to worry. Eliezer's son's not going to inherit. You're going to have a son. Now, verse 5, He brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven. Tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. God had told him before his seed would be as numberless as the sand on the seashore. Now he tells him to look toward heaven. It must have been night. God took him by the hand and said, Look up now, Abraham. And we're told that in that section, with the naked eye, you can see about 5,000 stars. I'm also told if you'd put a 16-inch telescope on it, you'd see 50,000 stars. And I don't know what you'd see if you put the 100-inch or the 200-inch telescope on it. But be that as it may, I don't think any telescope could give you the exact number of stars that you could see at that time looking up. Now, Abraham, you can't count the stars. You won't be able to count your offspring. And you know what Abraham did? Verse 6, he believed in the Lord. And it's very expressive here. It really means this. Abraham said, Amen to the Lord. God says, I'm going to do it. And Abraham says, Amen. God says to you and me, I gave my son to die for you. If you believe on him, you won't perish. You'll have everlasting life. Will you say amen to that? Will you believe God? Will you accept it? That's what it means. That's justification by faith. He believed in the Lord. He believed God, and when he believed God, God at that moment declared him righteous. By what? His works? No. His works were imperfect. He didn't have perfection to offer God. And we're going to see how Paul will develop that a little later on. But Abraham didn't have perfection. But now he does because his faith is counted for righteousness. That is justification. He stands justified before God. Now, Abraham said to the Lord, would you mind putting that in writing? Now, somebody says, well, I've read my Bible back in Genesis, and I don't remember it saying that. Well, it does. Verse 7, he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, listen to Abraham now, he's talking back to the Lord. He's not one of these, you know, super pious saints. He said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? In other words, put it in writing. 
And you know what the Lord said? The Lord said, well, I tell you, meet me down at the courthouse, and I'll put it in writing. Now, somebody said, wait a minute, doesn't say that. But it does, friends. Verse 9, he said unto him, take me a heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now, that's the way they made contracts in that day. That's the way that it was done. In fact, that's the way Jeremiah tells us about the contracts that were made in his day. And if you turn over, and I didn't intend to do this, but I guess I ought to, Jeremiah thirty-four eighteen says, "...and I will give the man that have transgressed my covenant, which have not performed the words of the covenant which they had made before me when they cut the calf in twain and passed between the parts thereof." In other words, when they made a contract in that day, two men agreed. One man agreed to do something. The other man agreed to do something in turn. They had put the sacrifice, a half on this side, a half on the other side. They would take hands and walk between. And that sealed the contract. That's what means going before notary, friends, down at the courthouse. Now, the thing that Abraham did, he got the sacrifices ready. It's rather picturesque. Verse 10, he took unto him all these and divided them in the midst, laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. Now, Abraham's waiting. What happened? Well, the fowls came down upon the carcasses. Abraham drove them away. God was late getting there. He didn't get there till sundown. And then what happened? Well, we're told that a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, a harbor of great darkness fell upon him. You know Why? Because Abraham's not going to go through. You know why? Abraham's not going to promise anything. God's doing the promising. Friends, 1,900 years ago, Jesus Christ went to the cross for your sins and my sins, and he's not asking you to say your prayers to get saved or be a nice little Sunday school boy. He's asking you to trust his son that died for you. He made the contract. He's the one that went through, and he's the one that's made the promise, the covenant that he'll save you. And that's the new covenant for us. This is the old covenant he made with Abraham. And you know what? Abraham believed God. (laughs) And what? He just said amen to God, and God made it good to him. Because you see, Abraham, if it depended on Abraham saying his prayers every night, you know, he might miss one night. And if he missed one night, the promises are no good. But you see, God is the one that's doing the promises here. So back in Galatians, what do we have? Well, Abraham believed in the Lord, and it was counted to him for righteousness. What a glorious, wonderful picture this is that we have. Now he says, "...know ye therefore that they which are of faith..." The same are the children of Abraham. God did this for Abraham before the law was ever given. He didn't make it to him because of works. He told Abraham, I'll do this for you if you believe me. And Abraham says, I believe you. (laughs) I believe you. Oh, God today wants your faith to rest on a solid foundation. But my friend, if you're going to come to him, you're going to come to him by faith. That is... He's come to the door of your heart, and he can't come any farther than that. He won't knock it down. He'll knock there and say, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now, if you let him in, he'll save you, and you can only open the door by faith, my friend. Now, I want us to move today down to verse 8, and I want to read verse 8. 
and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel under Abraham. Well, if faith without works, you see, was sufficient for Abraham, why should we desire something different? And as the blessing is not to Abraham's law works, but to his faith, why should we turn from faith to law works? And here we read in the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith. He preached the gospel to Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Now, there are two things that I'd like to call attention to here that we think are rather important. Of course, one of them is this. When did God preach the gospel to Abraham? Well, you'll notice the illustration we used last time was the quotation that was from the 15th chapter of Genesis. Now, that was at the beginning of the life of Abraham. That is his life of faith. Now, when you come to this next verse here, verse 8, when did God preach the gospel to Abraham? And the quotation that is given there, in these shall all nations be blessed, well, you've got to turn to the end of the life of Abraham. That's over in the 22nd chapter of Genesis and at verse 17, after Abraham had offered Isaac upon the altar. Now, I say he offered him. He was in just a hair's breadth of doing that thing when God stopped him. And God counted he'd done it because he demonstrated that he had that faith in God. He was believing God could raise him from the dead, the writer to the Hebrews says. But now let me read Genesis twenty-two seventeen. Now, after this episode, God says that in blessing, I will bless thee, and in multiplying... I'll multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemy, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Now, the important thing is, this man obeyed the voice of God. He didn't go through it. God wouldn't let him. And he was willing to go through with it when God commanded it. And when God says stop, he stopped. Why? Because he obeyed the voice of God. Now, he demonstrated actually here by his actions that he had the faith that when it says back in the 15th chapter, he believed God and it counted to him for righteousness. Now, there are some people that are troubled because they feel like there's a contradiction in the Scripture between Paul and James. Because over in the second chapter of the book of James, it says in verse 20, and I read beginning there, "...but wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works, when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar?" Now, I hope that you can see here that God says, and Paul writes here, Abraham was justified by faith. And that was at the beginning of his ministry, and here at the end of his ministry, why this man James says he was justified, how? By works, because he offered up Isaac his son upon the altar. 
And now he goes on and says, "...seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was made perfect." John Calvin used to put it like this, "...faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone." In other words, a saving faith is a dynamic, vital faith that leads to works. Now, not works of law. And I hope you understand here, when James says, Abraham our father was justified by works, what kind of works? The works of faith, friends. Faith produces works. And this idea today of trying to say works will save you, you get the cart before the horse. In fact, some of them put the horse in the cart. But the important thing is to see justified by faith and it leads to works, and it did in the life of this man. And I believe that before God, he sees our heart. He knows whether we've trusted Christ or not. And friends, he knows whether you're genuine or not. And for that reason, I like to say to church members today, then why don't you be genuine? He knows whether you are or not. You can fool the people in the church. You can fool your neighbors. You can put up a pious front. But why not be real and have a lot of fun in it all? And you don't have to put on. You can be real and trust Christ as your Savior. And that is the thing that's so important. And that will produce works. A living, dynamic faith will do that. Now, you will notice here that careful reading of the passage here in James reveals that James uses the history of Abraham to show that faith without works is dead. In fact, this is the last time God appeared to him. And not that portion that Paul refers to here in Galatians when he says he's justified by faith. Paul says faith alone is sufficient and proves that assertion by Abraham's history as found in the 15th chapter of Genesis. Now, James says that faith without works is dead and proves it by Abraham's history is found in the 22nd chapter of Genesis. If Abraham had welched in the 22nd chapter, said, wait a minute, I don't believe you like that. I don't really believe you. I've been putting on all these years. Then it would have been obvious that his faith was a pseudo-faith, but it was a genuine faith back in the 15th chapter, and God knew it that. Now, the works that James speaks of are not works of law at all. The law hadn't been given then, friends. We need to recognize that. And he says here in verse 23, "...the Scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him, or imputed to him for righteousness." Now, James says that. Well, he's going back now, you see, to the reference that Paul gives at first. Then Paul says the gospel was preached to Abraham when? At the end of his life, when God made this promise to him. Now, there's no contradiction when you examine these passages like that between Paul and James. They are saying the same thing. One is looking at faith at the beginning. The other is looking at faith at the end. Are One's looking at the root of faith, the other's looking at the fruit of faith. The root of faith is faith alone saves you. But that saving faith produces something. Or again, John Calvin says, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. Now, that's very important to see. Now, let me move on down here 
in verse 9, "...so then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham." The word faithful here should be believing, believing Abraham. In other words, God saves the sinner today on the same basis that he saved Abraham. That is, he asked of the sinner faith. He asked Abraham to believe him that he would do certain things for him. He asked you and me to believe that he's already done certain things for us in giving Christ to die. And so faith is the modus operandi by which you and I are saved. Now, verse 10, "...for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them." Now, if you'll notice here the word continueth, that is the important word. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Now, I'm willing to grant that maybe there was a day in your life you felt very good and you were on top of the world and you were singing, everything's coming up daisies. And on that day, while you walked with the Lord, you didn't stump your toe. And then you say, well, because I did that, God saves me. But I'd like to ask the question here, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. How about that? Do you keep the law 24 hours every day, seven days a week, 52 weeks out of the year in thought, word, and deed? My friend, the law could only condemn and will condemn you when you let down. And if you're a human being, you let down. I'm almost sure you do. You're not walking on top of the world all the time. I know there is a preacher, and he's a very fine preacher. He's always going around saying, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. And someone asked his wife one day, says, Is he like that all the time? And she said, No, says he has bad days. We all have bad days, don't we? And if you're going to come under law, my friend, you just will have to be under law. And if you have a good day, you're not going to be rewarded for that. Suppose that I keep all the laws of Pasadena, where I live, for 20 years. And I've been living here 20 years. And I guess maybe when the policeman's not looking sometimes, you know, if I'm in a hurry, I speed up a little. And I know now I'm going to get letters I mentioned that once before, and oh, did I get lectures. And I hope these people who lecture me, I hope that they're keeping all of the rules and regulations also. But may I say to you, maybe I have kept them all. Let me say that. That's a better illustration. Twenty years, I keep all the laws. Well, suppose I wait out at my house. Well, I've kept the laws for 20 years. I feel like the officials of Pasadena ought to come out and give me a medal. My friend, they don't give you a medal for keeping the law. But suppose I keep it perfect for 20 years. And then in that day after the 20th year, I go out and I really break the law. Suppose I steal. Suppose I break the speed limit. You know what's going to happen? They're going to arrest me. They're going to arrest me. <laughs> You see, the law doesn't reward you. It doesn't give you life. The law penalizes you. Faith, my friend, gives you something. 
In other words, if you're saved by faith, then that's the important thing you see. Now, you're to continue in it if you're going to be under law. Now, he says, verse 11, "...but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it's evident, for the just shall live by faith." Friends, even the Old Testament taught that you're saved by faith. It never said you're saved by law. You couldn't mention anybody this morning or today or this year. You can have a whole year to think it over. And if you find that somebody living back under the law was saved by keeping the law, let me know. I've never been able to find anybody that got saved by law. You know, at the heart of the Mosaic system was that sacrificial system. That was very important. That's what made Moses' face shone as it did. He put a veil over his face when it began to disappear. But I tell you, for a time there, it did shine. Because he rejoiced that God could extend grace and mercy to people, even under law. And that's the only way he saved people under law, was by grace and mercy. And in Habakkuk, it says, the just shall live by faith. This is Habakkuk 2.4. And by the way, that is quoted three times in the three major doctrinal epistles, in Galatians, here, in Romans, and in Hebrews. And there's a particular emphasis in each epistle. The just, that is justification, is emphasized in Romans, shall live that is Hebrews, the 11th chapter of Hebrews, for instance. The just shall live by faith. And as we are seeing here in Galatians, the great emphasis is upon by faith. Now, will you notice, he goes on to say, And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Now, this is also an important verse. Faith and law are contrary principles for salvation and also for living. One cancels out the other. They're diametrically opposed to each other. If you're going to live by law, be saved by law, and live by law, then may I say to you, you can't be saved by faith. You can't combine them. They're contrary. It's just like when my daughter visited us down in Florida. We really wanted to go back by train, and that was just when the trains were beginning to phase out. And we went down and tried to get a train route back. Well, we had had to go halfway around the world to go from Florida back to California. At least you'd have to go through Chicago. And I didn't want to go through Chicago, and she didn't either. So we had to come back by plane. And when I got the tickets, she said, oh, I wish we could go by train. I said, wouldn't it be nice if we could go both ways? Wouldn't it be nice if we could sit in the plane, put our feet down in the train, and go back that way? But, you know, that's absurd. You can't go both ways. If you're going to go by plane, you're going by plane. If you're going by train, you're going by train. You are not going to sit in a plane and put your feet down in the train. They've got no arrangement like that. And God has no arrangement for you to be saved by faith and by law. You're going to pick one or the other, friends. If you want it by law, then you can take it. But I advise you that he's already said you won't make it. He's already made that clear. Now he says, here again, the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Now he says, listen to this here, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. You see, the law condemned us. You might keep it for 
like I said, 20 years here. And they don't reward you here in Pasadena for keeping the law. And I don't imagine they do that in your town either. Believe me, if you break it, they will arrest you. And Christ hath redeemed us from the penalty of the law. Why? Being made a curse for us, he bore that penalty. For it's written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Now, this is a remarkable passage of Scripture. It's remarkable for several reasons. One reason is the children of Israel did not use this method of public execution, that is, hanging on a tree. They stoned them to death. My wife noted something over that. Frankly, I hadn't noted it, but when she went over with me, she said, you know, I often wondered why they used stoning in that day. She said, now I know. And says, anywhere you turn in this land, there are plenty of stones. And the rockiest land in the world is Israel. And it was a very good method because all you had to do is just step outside your door and there it was. And that was the method. But there was a way of treating criminals who were outstanding criminals, who were actually horrible criminals, and to make them a spectacle, this is what they did. Deuteronomy 21, 23. I'm reading now the law. His body, that is, if a man, he said, commits a sin worthy of death, and he be put to death, now hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any ways bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God." That is, if he's committed an awful crime, after he's been stoned to death, you take that body and string it up on the tree, that it might be a spectacle. But don't leave it there overnight. Why? He's accursed of God, that thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ bore the curse for us. He was hanged on a tree. That was no accident, by the way. Now he says here, verse 13, he has become a curse. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. The word is having become a curse. And when did he become a curse? Did he become a curse in his incarnation? Oh, no. When he was born, it was said that holy thing. Did he become a curse? in those silent years that we have so little record of? No, it says that he advanced in favor with God and man. Well, then, maybe he became a curse in his ministry. Oh, no, it was during his ministry that the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And somebody says, Then it must have been on the cross. Yes, but not the first three hours on the cross. Because when he offered up himself, he was without blemish. And Hebrews 9:14 says that through the eternal Spirit, he offered himself without blemish unto God. So those first three hours was when man did his worst. But you see, the last three hours is when God did his best. And it's during those last three hours that he was made a curse for us. It was then that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief, and he made his soul an offering for sin. Now, the very interesting thing is that we're told here was hanged on a tree. 
Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. The word is zulon. Actually means just the wood, if you please. He was hanged on a tree. And what a contrast here. He went on that cross, which was to him a tree of death, in order that he might make it a tree of life for you and me. What a picture that we have here. Now he says here, and notice this, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit how through faith. Now, Israel had the law for 1,500 years. They never made it by law. Peter, you remember, said that. He made that statement very clear, the council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. He said, we and our fathers, we were not able to keep the law. Why do we want to put the Gentiles under it? Now, if they could not keep it, we cannot keep it. Suppose you make a contract with a man, and then about a year later, you've agreed to pay him $100, let's say. Get it down in my size money, $100. And you say, well, I just think I'll pay him $50. And you go and say, here's $50. And the man says, well, wait a minute, you agreed to pay 100 He says, well, I've changed that. The man says, no, you don't. You can't change your contract after it's been made. Now, God made a promise to Abraham. He'd save him by faith. When the law came along, it did not disannul God's promise that he made to Abraham. It was a threefold promise. That, my friend, is very important to see. God saves by faith, and the coming of the law never changed that one whit. Therefore, God now has made it to those like Abraham. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one unto thy seed, which is Christ. And so God had called Abraham, going to make him a blessing to the world. How did he make him a blessing to the world? Through Jesus Christ, my friend. He is the one that has brought salvation to the world. Now, he moves on down in making a contrast between law and grace And he says in verse 17, And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. Now, what he's saying here is, of course, that God made a promise or gave a promise to Abraham, made a covenant with him, Now, when the law came along 430 years later, well, it didn't change it at all because you see that the law changed nothing as far as the promises made to Abraham are concerned. And actually, God has never gone back on those promises. He said of Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you a son and a people that will be as numberless as the sand on the seashore and the stars in heaven. And I'm also going to make you a blessing to all people. Now, God has brought from Abraham that nation. Several nations came from him, but that nation came from Abraham, that the promises were given through Isaac and lead down to the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed that's mentioned here. 
And God also said that he was going to make him a blessing to all people. And the only blessing today, friends, in this world is in Christ. You're not going to get a very good deal today. I don't think you'll get a good deal from your neighbors. I don't think you'll get a good deal in your church. I don't think you'll get a good deal in business. I just don't think this world's prepared to give you a good deal. But may I say to you, the Lord Jesus Christ has been given to you. That's a good deal, by the way. And that is the supreme gift that God has made. And it's a promise that he's made. He'd save those who would trust Christ. Now, will you notice, he says, "...for if the inheritance be of the law, it's no more a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise." That's verse 18. Now, the important thing to note here is this. The promise was made concerning Christ before the law came in, and that promise holds as good as though there'd been no law given, friends. It's made irrespective of it. Now, there is a question that arises. The point is, then what value was the law? Why was it given? Paul is not playing down the law if you think that's what he's doing. He's trying to help these people understand the purpose of the law. Why was the law given? That is the important thing. Paul's not attempting to say that the law did not have a glory and a majesty attached to it. And Paul is not even about to play it down to the extent where actually it mounts to nothing at all. That's not his method. It's not what he's attempting to do. He shows the law here in all of its majesty and its fullness and its perfection, but he shows that that very perfection that the law reveals is the reason that it creates a hurdle that you and I can't get over in order to be accepted of God. Now, let's listen to Paul as he talks here about the purpose of the law, beginning here with verse 19. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now, will you notice here, the question is, wherefore then serveth the law? Now, he's giving us a purpose sentence here. What was the purpose of the law? Well, he says it was added. It's something that was added for the sake of, instead of because, for the sake of of transgressions, till the seed should come. Now, that little word, tell, that little time word is important. That means that it was temporary. The law was just given for an interval there from the time of Moses till the time of Christ. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, John says, until the seed should come. You see, it was actually to be temporary. And I think that's very important for us to see here. It was a temporary measure. And that is the best thing that could be said about it. Because he goes on to say here, Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, 
but God is one. Now, the law was given, it was added, we're told, because of transgressions, or for the sake of transgressions. It was given to reveal, not to remove sin. It was not given to keep man from sin, but because sin actually had already come. It was to show man to himself as being a natural, ugly sinner, crude sinner before God. And any man that's honest and will look at himself in the light of the law sees himself guilty. It wasn't given to prove that all men were sinners. And it was not given, as many liberals are saying, the law was given that this is a standard by which you are to become holy. Why, my friend, you never become holy this way because to begin with, you can't keep it in and of yourself. Now, many today think man becomes a sinner when he commits a sinful act, that he's pretty nice until he breaks over and commits sin. But that's not true. It's because he's already a sinner that a man commits the act of sin. A man lies, why? Because he's a liar. A man steals because he's a thief. Now, he doesn't become a liar when he utters the lie. You remember what the Scripture says? All men are liars. I didn't call you that. God called you that. And I find myself, I can start out in the day, and I haven't gone an hour until I blame it on other folk, but they make me out a liar. Somebody meets me and says, my, it's a beautiful day. Well, if you want to know the truth, it's a good old foggy day here in Southern California, and I don't think it's so nice. But I say yes. I lie about it. And then they say, how are you feeling today? Well, I tell you, I've got a dark brown taste in my mouth, and I don't feel good. But I say, oh, I'm feeling fine. And you know, I've lied twice right there. The first thing I do and the first person I meet of a morning. It's just natural for us to be that way, friend. And some of us commit more serious lying than that. And why do we do it? Well, all of us have that nature. And the law was given to show that we're sinners. And you and I need a mediator, one to stand between us and God, one to help us out. Now he moves on down into this area here. And let me read now verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? And certainly the law is not. Why? Well, he says, God forbid, which means certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. You see, if there had been another way of saving sinners, why, God would have used that way of saving sinners. If he could have given a law, if there had been possible. But you see, the Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to them that believe. You see, the law brought death. For the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And as all are concluded under sin, therefore all died. Now, what is needed, therefore, is life. We have seen that the law brings death, and that's all that it does. It brings death. 
And it's not actually the degree, but the mere fact of sin that brings death. Hence, all are equally dead, and therefore equally in need. You may not have committed a greater sin as Stalin committed, but you and I have got the same kind of nature. In fact, it was Gertie, the great German, and there are many college professors saying today that he had the greatest mind of any man that ever lived. And Gertie made this statement. He said, I never saw a crime committed, but what I too might have committed that crime. He recognized he had that kind of a nature, and therefore it's not just the degree, but the very fact of sin that brings death, the very fact you're a sinner. And it's the common grace of God that has kept most of us out of the penitentiary. I'm sure that's true in my case. Let me illustrate what we mean by this matter of the fact of sin and not the degree. Now, here is a high building, tall building. Let's just say that it's 24 stories high. And there are three men up there. And the superintendent comes up and he said, Now, be very careful. He says, Don't step off of this building because if you do, why, you'll be killed. It'll be death for you. And one fellow there says, this crazy superintendent's always trying to frighten people. I don't believe if you stepped off this building, you'd die. And he just deliberately walks to the edge of the building and steps off. You know what? He's dead. In fact, the matter is, when he passed the 10th floor, there might have been somebody there that looked out the window and said to him, well, how are things? And he says, well, so far, so good. <laughs> But my friend, he hadn't arrived yet. There's death at the bottom. And the superintendent was right. This man's killed. Now, suppose that another fellow, when the superintendent tells him that, why, it frightens him, and he starts to run to go down the elevator or the steps, and he accidentally slips, and he skids right off the edge of the building. And you know what happens? He's killed, too. And now this third fella, well, let's say the mafia or some gangsters are up there, and they take him and they throw him over the building because he's their enemy. And you know what happens? He's killed. Now, is the man who's thrown over the building, is he less dead when he hits the bottom as the man that stepped off deliberately? Now, that's a very interesting thing. You see, they all broke the law of gravitation, and death is inevitable for all of them. It's the fact, you see, and not the degree. The very fact that they went over. Now, the very interesting thing is, can that law of gravitation that took them down to their death, can that which killed them give them life? And it cannot. Now, the law cannot give you life at all, any more than a natural law could give you life after you've fallen off and you're dead. You just can't reverse it and come back on the building like they do when they reverse the movies sometimes. Now, what we have here is this. The law of sin works this way. Death follows wherever sin comes. The law of sin knows nothing today of extenuating circumstances. It knows nothing about mercy. It has no elasticity, but it's inflexible, it's inexorable, it's immutable. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. 
And God said to that couple in the Garden of Eden, The day thou eatest, thou shalt surely die. And he says in Exodus 34, 7, He will by no means clear the guilty. Therefore, all have sinned, and by the law we are dead. The law slew us. It's called a ministration of death by Paul. And it's a ministration of condemnation. The law condemns all of us. Now, can the law bring life? My friend, no more than a fall from a high roof can bring life to one who died by that fall. If the law has slain you, and the purpose, therefore, of the law was therefore never, never to give life. It was to show us that we're guilty sinners before God. Now, let's look at this, and I'll read verse 22. Again, it says, "...but the Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe." This is a tremendous statement, and friends, it's a great statement that today it's the law of God that we're all under sin. And that brings death. Now, will you note here the next verse? But before faith came, that is, faith in Jesus Christ today who died for us, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Now, until the Lord Jesus Christ came, the law had in it mercy, because it had a mercy seat. It had an altar where sacrifices for sin could be brought and forgiveness could be obtained and mercy could be found there. All that was pointing to Christ. But before faith came, Paul says that we were kept under the law, shut up until the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Now he says here, wherefore the law was and the correct word is, wherefore the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now, we've come to a very remarkable section here, and I say that every day, I think, but it's true every day, and it certainly is true today. This is the reason right through here that Martin Luther could say, this is my epistle, I'm wedded to it. It's in this section here that that young man, John Wesley, who'd come to this country as a missionary, and he was walking down Aldersgate, because when he came to this country, he said, I came to America to convert Indians, but who's going to convert John Wesley? And that night, he heard this section of Galatians explain, and my did wonders for him, and he was used of God to bring in the greatest spiritual movement that the English-speaking world has ever had. Now, will you note here, he's going to say and does say that God refuses to accept the works of any man for salvation. He says the righteousness of man's filthy rags in his sight. And in Romans 4, 5, he made it very clear, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. 
Now, God refuses to accept law-keeping. God refuses today to accept that. Paul's making it very clear here that the law could not save you. All it did was bring death. And fact of the matter is, the law was not given to save sinners. It was given to show them that they are lost sinners. We are told in verse 19 that we saw last time, it was added for the sake of transgressions. Let you know that you're a sinner. And therefore, the law, as we've said, will not remove sin. It'll reveal sin. It'll not keep you from sin, because sin had already come. And it shows that man's not really, as Hollywood would like to portray him, as being a sophisticated, refined, trained sinner. But actually, man is a sinner in the raw. He's an ugly-looking sinner, if you please. Now, I want to use an illustration that I think might be helpful. It's a very homely illustration, and don't be afraid of it. I'm going to take you to the bathroom. (laughs) I hope you don't misunderstand. Now, television does that today. It always shows somebody taking a shower or in a bathtub, or today they're advertising everything that's in the bathroom today, especially the soaps. Now, I want to take you in there and let you see something And I'll take you to your bathroom. I'm confident that every one of you listening to me at this moment, that you have at home a bathroom in which you have a wash basin, and above that wash basin, a mirror. Now, that wash basin serves a purpose, and the mirror serves a purpose. Now, you get a smudge spot, say, on your face, and you go in, the bathroom, you look in the mirror, you see that smudge spot. Now, what do you do? Well, you don't use the mirror to remove it, do you? I don't imagine you do. If you see a smudge spot, then you lean over and rub your face against the mirror, and one of your loved ones comes by and sees you. They'll feel sorry for you and call a psychiatrist and make an appointment just to find out what's wrong with you. But, my friend, that just wouldn't happen in our home because we're not that silly. I guess none of us are quite that silly of rubbing up against the mirror. But today we've got multitudes of people in our churches that are rubbing up against the mirror of the law of God and thinking they're going to remove it. You don't remove the spot by rubbing against the mirror. You see, the law reveals the Word of God as a mirror, and it shows us who we are and what we are, that we are sinners, and that we've come short of the glory of God. That's what the law reveals. Now, thank God, beneath the mirror there's a basin. That's where you remove the spot. And my friend, the mirror is the Word of God. And the law, the law is the mirror that you just don't rub up against. It just shows us. But thank God, beneath that mirror, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. And so there is a wash basin, and the law proves man a sinner and never makes him a saint. 
The law was given, as Paul says in Romans, that every mouth might be stopped and the whole world become guilty before God. Now will you notice verse 24, "...wherefore the law is our schoolmaster." Now what does he mean by that? He goes on to say, verse 25, "...but after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster." Now, the word is pedagogus, and it doesn't mean school teacher. It's schoolmaster here, and that's a good word. But it meant something quite different back in the days of Paul. In the Roman household, there were certain servants that had charge of the children. For instance, there was a servant that had charge of the man's chattels, such as his plows, his chariots, and his livestock. Then there was a servant that had charge of the man's bookkeeping, his personal affair, his bank deposit, his bonds, and that sort of thing. Then there was the servant that had charge of his children. Now, that servant in the Roman home, he took the little one born in the home, he raised him, He's the one who changed his dieties. He's the one who blew his nose. He's the one that changed his clothes. He's the one that fed him. He's the one that spanked him, and he's the one that fed him. And then there came a day when the little fella was ready to go to school. And this pedagogus took him by the hand and led him to school and turned him over to the school teacher. Now, that's where the word pedagogus gets its name. Now, that word ped there at the beginning... We get our word pedal from it. It has to do with the feet down here. And ago means to lead. That means simply this, that this servant took that little child by the hand and led him to school and turned him over to the school teacher. You see, that's a pedagogus. Now, the law was a pedagogus. The law took you and me by the hand, brought us to the cross of Christ and said, little fella, There's your Savior. You're to trust Him. You see, the law was to lead us to Christ. Now, we come here to a very wonderful section. Not that we haven't been in one, but verse 26 says, "...for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus." Now, Paul is going to show in the remainder of this chapter and also in chapter 4, first part of it, some of the benefits that come to us by trusting Christ that we could never get under law. In other words, the law never did give a believer the nature of a son of God. Christ can do that. And only faith in Christ can today make us sons of God. And that's the only thing that will. Law never made us son of God. Now, let's look at this for just a moment. He says, "...for ye are all the children." I'd like to change that. And I think it's in this New Schofield Reference Bible. They have changed that to sons. And I'm glad they made that change. Because the Greek word is weos, and it means son. And I used to say, legitimate sons of God. And somebody came to me and said, are there any other kind of children that God has other than legitimate? Well, 
That's accurate. He doesn't have but one kind. That's legitimate sons of God. And friends, I just use it for emphasis, therefore. You are made a legitimate son of God by faith in Christ, and that's all that it takes. Not faith plus something equals salvation, but faith plus nothing makes you a son of God, and nothing else will make you a son of God. Now, will you notice this? For ye are all the sons of God. How? By faith in Christ Jesus. Not faith plus something else, but faith. And have you ever noticed that the individual Israelite back in the Old Testament with the law was never a son of God? God called the nation Israel his son. He says, Israel, my son. Now, the corporate nation was looked at as a son and also called the elect nation. But that elect nation was generally just a remnant. And the individual Israelite was never called a son of God. What was he called? He was called a servant of Jehovah or a servant of God. Now, you have, for instance, Moses. How did God speak of Moses? Now, Moses was on very intimate terms with God. And God said to him, Moses, my servant, is dead. That's what he said at the end. That's his epitaph. That's the best God could say of him. Moses, my servant. And then the man after God's own heart, David. God said to him, David, my servant. You see, even if you kept the law, friends which you don't do, but even if you did, it would be your righteousness, and your righteousness would be actually inferior to the righteousness of God. It would not measure up to his righteousness, and it requires his righteousness, you see. And we are told now very definitely in the New Testament, John 1:11, he came unto his own, and his own received him not, but to as many as received him, to them gave he the exousion power, the authority, the right to become the sons of God, even to those that don't do any more nor less than simply trust him, believe in his name. He said one night to a religious ruler by the name of Nicodemus was religious to his fingertips, and he had a God-given religion. It had gone to seed, but he was following that meticulously. And our Lord said to him that night, Ye must be born again. Nicodemus was not a son of God. <laughs> he said to him, Ye must be born again. And I want to make it very plain, and I want to be very dogmatic right here. Your prayers... Your fundamental separation and your gifts that you boast that you have today and your baptism will never make you a son of God. The only thing that makes you a son of God is faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, I want to make this statement. It needs to be made today. And I don't want to be ugly, but I guess I am going to be ugly. My wife says, when you say you don't want to be ugly, you always turn around and you're ugly. 
Well, I guess that's what I'm going to be. Will you listen? The most damnable heresy that's ever been propagated in this world is the heresy of the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. It is that teaching of liberalism that has caused this nation to spend and give away about 340-some-odd billions of dollars throughout the world. And our insides are hated today throughout the world. (laughs) Why? Because all of us are the children of God, you know. And we have sat down at council tables, these diplomatic squabbles, with some of the biggest rascals the world has ever seen. And we talk about that we are being honest and honorable, and that today we are all the children of God, and we must act like sons of God. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ never said anything like that. He looked at a group of religious rulers, and he said to them, "'Ye are of your father the devil,' and the works of your Father you will do. Now, I didn't say that. The gentle Jesus said that. Evidently, there was somebody in his day that was not a son of God. My friend, I think the devil still has a lot of children running around in this world today. They're not all sons of God. The only way you can become a son of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, let's move on down. He says here in verse 28, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And I just passed by verse 27. I'll have to pick it up. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, I hope that you're not thinking that baptism here means water baptism. Water baptism is always the ritual baptism, and I believe in it. I believe in it with all my heart. I think every believer should be baptized. And in my book, why today, although I was brought up at the beginning in the Methodist church, and then I was in the Presbyterian church, and I am an ordained Presbyterian preacher, actually, I believe in immersion. I think that it best represents the thing that is spoken of by real baptism, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you receive that the moment you trust Christ. What does that do? That takes you and puts you in the body of believers. Paul says, by one Spirit are we all baptized into the body of Christ. That means we are identified. We are put in reality and truth in the body of believers, the church. And he's saying here, as many of you as have been baptized into Christ, you put on Christ. You are seen in Christ. God sees you in Christ, and therefore he sees you perfect. And you can't add to that, by the way. Now, in this body of believers, there's neither Jew nor Greek. And this is the only thing that rubs out racial lines, is when you come to Christ. And any man in Christ is my brother. And I don't care what the color of his skin is. It's the color of his heart I'm interested in. And there are a lot of white people walking around with some very black hearts, my friend. And they just don't happen to be my brothers. I don't care what you say. And it's only in Christ that we're made one. 
And thank God today, and I rejoice, I get letters from people of every race now that the radio reaches out. And they call me brother, and I call them brother. Why? Because we are brethren. We're going to be together throughout eternity. We're in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. This matter of capital and labor, the only thing that could bring them together is Christ, of course. And there's neither male nor female. Now, somebody says, wait a minute. Well, this gets rid of women's lib, by the way, because the only place you can be made one's in Christ. And until then, I'm sorry, ladies, but men are going to dominate this world. This is a man's world. Now, I'm getting trouble saying that, but that's just the way I look at it today. But you can be made one in Christ Jesus. We're all made one in Christ How wonderful it is. Then he goes on to say, And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed. (laughs) How? And heirs according to the promise. Well, because of the fact that Abraham was saved by faith. And we are saved by faith. Abraham brought a little sacrifice looking to the coming of Christ. He's already come now. And in point of time, I look back in history to the time he came And I say 1,900 years ago, the Son of God came, died on the cross for me that I might have life. And today I trust him, and I'm of Abraham's seed. I had the privilege of speaking to a group of wonderful Jewish folk some time ago, and I started in. I said, well, it's always a privilege to me to speak to the sons of Abraham. And they all smiled. And then I said, because I'm a son of Abraham, too. And they didn't all smile then. In fact, some of them had sort of a question mark on their faces, and rightly so. Why? Because if I'm in Christ, and you're in Christ, then we belong to Abraham's seed, and we're heirs according to the promise. How wonderful this is.